episode 154 of Australia's number one marketing show. I have a chat with the founder of Australia's largest privately owned pizza chain about innovation, pricing, and guerrilla marketing. Plus, I play marriage counsellor. Plus, I have a big whinge. So much to cover and so little time. Welcome to the Small Business Big Marketing Show, where successful small business owners share their secrets to take your marketing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Tim Reid. G'day, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Small Business Big Marketing Show. I am your host, Timbo Reid, but you, you right there with the headphones on, are a motivated small business owner ready ready to crank out some great marketing because that is why you tune into this show. And we are brought to you by the very good folk at Net Registry who live and breathe the idea of getting your online marketing sorted. So if you need domain name registration or website hosting or pay-per-click advertising or pretty much anything to do with online marketing, improving your digital footprint, also known as, then uh, Net Registry would be the place to go. Really good people. They are in Australia. They are here to help. And uh, you can visit them at netregistry.com.au or you can head over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com, hit the Net Registry button, and you'll be taken to a series of packages that they've put together for you, the listener. Hey, um... Wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. We had great feedback from uh, our episode last week where I interviewed Jamie Zimmerman of Travel Sim. I don't know, if you ever doubted the power of podcasting, then don't. Well, you don't because you're listening to one right now. But the amount of feedback Jamie and I got for that episode and passed on to Jamie and was just astounding. Love it, guys and girls. Just so appreciated. Jamie was blown away. He's thinking he should get a podcast for Travel Sim, but it just reminds me that this podcast beast is, is growing. It is growing at a rate of knots. You know, two, three years ago, wasn't getting that much feedback. Now it's coming through on a regular basis, um, particularly quite a lot for the Jamie and episode. I encourage you to go back and have a listen uh, if you haven't already to episode 153 because um, Jamie and really shared some marketing gold and it was quite a personal uh, account of his journey to date. Uh, and he's just a, just a good guy. So have a listen. Hey, uh, we are also here to welcome everyone from the Flying Solo community. Now, today's episode, jam-packed, jam-packed. I play marriage counsellor. Stay tuned for that. Um, I have a whinge. Yep, I am going to get on my soapbox and have a whinge about a recent presentation I saw. Uh, I We are then, we are then going to get stuck in to today's special guest. Well, not stuck in, so to speak, but we are then going to have a fireside chat with Tom Potter, who is the founder of Eagle Boys Pizza. So we have got a lot to cover. Let's get stuck in. So I get this question from Shauna, and Shauna says, Aloha Timbo, or Hola, I don't know, don't know what that is, but I know she's American. I am a transplant from Los Angeles, California, living in Perth. Well, I've been flourishing here for about six years, no smog, relatively low traffic, and about nine million less people. What do other small business owners do to get internal buy-in from their spouse, partner, and family? Of course, this is about money and the perception of normal work. And then she explains what she does. I'm not a clock-in, clock-out type. Well, not many small businesses are. They're generally, small business owners are, they generally clock-in. I'm not a gambler or a drama junkie either. My writing business comes in surges, and my average and median annual income is reasonable for the hours I work. Wait to hear the hours she works. I don't know whether it's a spellow or not, but anyway, I'll read on. I work part-time, about 20 hours scattered throughout the day. I don't know whether she means a week or two hours scattered throughout the day. I don't know, but I'm impressed. I'm impressed, Shauna. I don't need a nanny or babysitter to cover my seven-year-old sports and school events. I'm DIY taxi and event coordinator without skipping a beat. Love your work, Shauna. You are busy. 20 hours? Yeah, must be a typo. My clients are quite satisfied with my work, and I'm happy with the variety of projects. So what are the effective strategies, not offensive or versus defensive? 
what are, that other businesses use to get family buy-in. She just finishes off by saying, right now, I do not even need my family, husband, parents, in-laws, to champion my work. Okay, okay, I'm pretty sure you're not a marriage counselling show, but maybe one of your small businesses is a relationship counsellor. Well, there may well be, and if you are a relationship counsellor, then uh, hit me up on the show notes and give us a little bit of advice for Shauna. But what I'd say is three, three things, Shauna, and it's not magic, but kind of just based on my own experience, I think, number one, love what you do. You know, as small business owners, we've got to love what we do. You know, why would you do it otherwise? You just go and work for the man, you know? If you hate what you do, go and work for the man. But if you love what you do, it shows on your face, it shows in the energy you put out into the world, and everyone around you is going to love that. What's that old saying? Um, People come to watch when you're on fire, you know? And they watch because they want some of what you've got. So number one, love what you do. Number two, avoid being all-consumed, I reckon. You know, Shauna, um, I don't think you're working 20 hours twenty hours a day, but you're working long enough to kind of have to ask this question because possibly your family are looking in going, what's that Shauna up to? What's she on? What's that small business pill she's taking? Avoid being all consumed by it. Um, that way you can turn it on and turn it off. And that's hard. You know, this is a marketing show, I know, but, you know, marketing's everything and everything's marketing. It is hard to not be all consumed with your small business, particularly if you love what you do. It's like a child, you know, you love it. You want to introduce it to the world. You want to help it grow. And um, I get that, but we do have to switch off. So to that point, my third and final point is be present when you're not working and so that they see, you know, that she's not completely affected by this work thing, by this small business bug, as some of us would call it. So be present when you're not working and they're going to respect you when you are and realize that you're doing something you love and you're not all consumed by it, but it's good for you and it's good for them. So Shauna, I hope that answered your questions. Listeners, if I missed anything and there's a massive chance I did, uh, then feel free to head over to the show notes for episode 154 at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. And, you know, just give us your two bobs worth in regards to what you would advise Shauna about helping getting getting internal buy-in from her family in regards to her job. Hey, Shauna, love your work. Good luck with your business. Okay, so as I said at the top of the show, I was or am going to have a bit of a whinge today, and I do it hesitantly because it is about a fellow public speaker who will not be named. Suffice to say that, you know, I'm a little bit aware of the whole karma thing and that, you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking. I earn a good proportion of my income from public speaking and uh, I don't go out there trying to bag others by any stretch of the imagination. But I did see a high profile one recently who let me down and I turned up to this event to see this person and I was let down and I want to share it because I think there are lessons for us, us motivated small business owners to, who, if you are thinking of embarking on a public speaking kind of marketing strategy, then there are some things you just don't do and there are things you do do so, uh, so you don't be a dodo. Oh, gee, that was very, very weak humor, Timbo. Anyway, we will keep going. So I saw this person. He is a high profile. Uh, I won't say anymore. He has a high profile, but he didn't understand his audience. And he had hundreds of small business owners there in front of him. Many, I'm guessing, there to hear him speak. And he just didn't. He didn't show any respect for the audience. He spoke in such big, theoretical, corporate corporate terms. And that really, really pissed me off. He showed a beer TVC, like a big, big production beer. He was there to speak about brand, right? Uh, he showed a big beer, beer TVC, TVC being television commercial for the uninitiated. And um, I couldn't see the relevance, could not see the relevance. One thing I know, when you're speaking to small business owners, you want the how, you want to know how. You don't want the theory. We've all got this, you know, we've got enough ideas. We just need to know how. So watching a, a multi-million dollar beer commercial production, that was of no use. Um, 
he was there to talk about brand. He defined brand in what I would consider an esoteric term. He said, brand is cash flow into eternity. What? What's that mean for my small business? Cash flow into eternity. How do I apply that? Look, a brand is an emotional attachment. You've got to build emotion between you and your clients, your customers, your prospect. And you do that by doing great marketing building great, producing great content, great blog posts, podcasts, doing public speaking, networking, all that stuff, being useful, solving problems. That's how you build a brand. And then you might get cash flow into eternity. That's an outcome. Um, I'm on my soapbox, aren't I? Look out. Uh, look, this is, a, this is a kind of, um, this is a bit picky, but his slides were so wordy. They had tens and tens of words on them. You can't do that, guys. If you are going to publicly speak, then you need a picture and you need a couple of words, three, four, five words. That is it. You just got to know your stuff. Um, he shared five pillars of branding. I have five pillars of branding. I have more than five pillars of branding, but my pillars are questions. What do you do? How do you do it? Who are your best mates? How do you want people to describe you? What public figure do you see your brand being most like? These are some of the questions that I pose when I ask a small business to identify their brand. But this person's five pillars were knowledge, esteem, relevance, differentiation, and the X factor. Again, you know, I kind of get it. I kind of got what he was talking about, but boy, oh boy, massive brain stretches and leaps in order to figure out how do I apply that to my small business. Um, he then played a video, another video. This was a pretty cool video. Uh, it, I could see how it had relevance to the small business owner, but he broke oh, a big rule. He left as the video was playing. Never to be seen again. He walked out of the event. You can't do that. You've got to hang around and have a chat to people. You know, when you publicly speak, when you give a presentation, you are going to generate more questions than answers. Well, hopefully you're going to give a whole lot of answers, but it's going to get people thinking. You've got to hang around and speak to people. Now, look, he might have had something unbelievably important to go to, but you know what? He would have been booked for that event months in advance because they had to promote that event months in advance. So, uh, look, oh, no, I'm a bit scared of the karma monster coming to get me after that rant, but I haven't named names, and I wanted to share with you because I know a, a number of listeners have spoken to me about public speaking, and I've spoken about it as being a fantastic strategy to build your business around and engage people and build that emotional attachment, and I want you to go about it in the right way and not that way. Um, you've got to give to your audience. You've got to give them the house, particularly if you're speaking to small businesses, but you might not be. But I think any audience loves the hows. You know, how is the how to is the most search prefix on the internet. So we do love the hows. Enough from me. I will humbly and quietly step down from my soapbox. Okay, it's time for today's special guest, who is Tom Potter. Tom is the founder of Australia's largest privately owned pizza chain in Eagle Boys Pizza. And uh, Tom has got some marketing gold to spread around, let me tell you. We cover a lot of ground, innovation, pricing, guerrilla marketing, all sorts of stuff. Plus, he's off creating a, another uh, another venture in a bakery. So he, it's interesting, he enters some fairly busy marketplaces, but also always seems to find a compelling point of difference. Now, in the spirit of honesty, and this show so far has been in the spirit of honesty, um, I found this interview tough. I found it tough for a number of reasons. I don't know. I was trying to kind of find uh, an in point to engage with Tom, which I normally find with my guest early on, and I just couldn't. And you might kind of sense that in my questioning. Um, the connection wasn't as good as it could be. There are times when it actually drops out. So I'm sorry about that, but that the I didn't want to lose the interview entirely. It's completely listenable, but yeah, we have a couple of connection problems. Tom, I'm not sure whether he realized actually it was an audio interview. There is a bit of coughing and there is a little bit of eating, a little bit of nibbling 
not on pizza, by the way. But um, so I wanted to excuse that. And um, he took a couple of uh, there was a couple of different times when someone knocked at his hotel room door, and we were interrupted. So I've had to obviously cut those spaces out, and it may feel a little bit disjointed. But hey. Every interview on the Small Business Big Marketing Show, you know, well, I try to rock your socks off, but um, every now and then we come up against some barriers. Suffice to say that um, this is a very, very interesting interview, and he does. I mean, we, we've we spoken about pricing before. Tom's got a great approach to uh, to pricing and how you should, and the mindset that you should take. Got a great mindset around guerrilla marketing, the importance of innovation in providing value in your business. So, um, we do cover a lot of ground, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy this. Just put up with the uh, the things that I covered and uh, relax into a you know cuppa and grab a pen and paper. And uh, here's Tom from Eagle Boys Pizza. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's amore. Tom Potter from Eagle Boys Pizzas, welcome to Small Business Big Marketing. Thanks, Tim. Mate, uh, what's going on with uh, Aubrey and the name Tom? I've had a past guest, Tommy O'Toole, high school dropout turned baker from Beechworth, and now I've got Tom Potter, a high school dropout from Baker, from Baker turned baker from Aubrey. Is there something in the air up there? I don't know. You're probably right there. There is there is a bit of confusion about which Tom's which at times. So considering we both uh, made a few bob out of a bit of dough, it is interesting. <laughs> What's your favourite pizza? Oh, it's... Uh your, your taste evolves as you grow older, unfortunately, and I'm not even going to go. I'm not even going to get into that. Yeah, fair enough. So, Tom, in 1987, you started a pizza shop in regional Victoria. Uh, I imagine there would have been a few pizza shops around. Maybe there weren't. But what what made you start a pizza shop? Um, look, I'd come out of a background of baking, and then I was involved with flour milling and um, the technical side of um, of of you know what we were doing with bread and bakeries and so forth. And I'd actually had some involvement with another pizza company who'd started up a home delivery business in Adelaide. And what was interesting was they'd opened up in Adelaide and been quite successful and I sort of looked at it and thought, I wonder how this would go in the country because it really wasn't happening. No one was really doing home-delivered pizza in regional Australia. So I went back to Albury and started in Albury because I knew Albury and I knew the town and, as it turned out, my mother became my partner who also lived in Albury. Wow. So, so your point of difference was the fact that you were home delivering. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we were the first. I mean, there's the great rules of business, and one of them is be first, or the great rules of marketing. First one is be first, the second one is be best. And if you can't be first, be best. Well, we were both. You know, we uh, we were the only ones in the market doing deliveries, and um, it was uh, you know it was nice times for a couple of years. You went into business with your mum. Was that uh, did she bankroll it, or what? Wh- why why with your mum? Yeah, she had um, she had some input financially, which was helpful. Um, oh, look, I had a choice really to go in and go and get a bunch of investors at the time, were accountants and lawyers, or do it with my mum. It was a pretty obvious choice. Mm-hmm. And the the name Eagle Boys and the pink livery. Tell me about that. Originally, I wanted to call it Beagle Boys, which was based on the Disney characters, and that was not going to be an option. So, as I was sitting around contemplating names, I jokingly said, "Why don't we just call it Eagle Boys?" And my mother actually liked it. She said she liked that it was a strong character, and that it had a sort of a team feeling about it with the word "boys," which is interesting because winding forward twenty years later, I've opened up a new business. Um, it's a twenty-four hour drive-through bakery concept, and I sent a brief out to a bunch of friends saying. Give me a name that I can tell people this is the Radica new bakery concept, but it also tells people what we do. And um, we've come up with the name Krusty Devil Bakehouse, uh, and it's worked beautifully because it sort of shows that we're a bit bit um, out of the ordinary, but also the, the word Krusty shows that we're, we're a bakery or we're selling fresh product. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'll come to that. I'm, I'm interested to uh, hear more about that, the Krusty Devil. So, Tom... Um Tell me, you built you built this business through radical change, innovation, and unusual business and marketing tactics. What were some of those? Oh, let's break that down. Um, what was the radical change? Was it home delivery? Yeah, um, the business was definitely a leader in in the industry when we started, mainly because we were the only ones doing it. So, stage one, which is you know nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety four, we were the only one and only home delivery. 
Then stage two, everybody else got into the business and we had to struggle or we struggled a little bit for being able to be different. So we then went back and we refocused the brand very, very much on a certain niche in the market, which worked quite well for us. Then stage three, the price wars started, which was in the mid to late 90s. Um, And with those price wars came a massive challenge with the business. And the chairman of the company challenged all of us really and said, the price war will stay forever. They never actually finish price wars. They think they th- you think it's going to subside, but the reality is it's not. And his challenge was, whatever you're doing today um, is going to have to be radically different tomorrow to survive. And that set us on a path over the next few years which allowed us to spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of research and then reinvent the business completely, which allowed us to then start building drive-through pizza shops and, of course, putting in the two-minute pizza guarantee, which was the cornerstone or the beachhead for the business for the next eight or nine years before I sold it. Just explain the concept of beachhead. Well, John, my chairman, he, he was the – John Kozik, he was the original founder of Pizza Hut in 1973 <clears throat> and he had a very much a strong opinion that, um, you know, in small business you eat what you kill and if you don't kill you'll starve. And as he was, um, you know, explaining to me that Pizza Hut, when they started in Australia, had a beachhead because they were the only restaurant who sold dining pizza. You know, you actually could sit down for the family um, and – as he continued to drive this point home, he said, we have no beachhead. You know, we are standing there in the middle of the battlefield and we've got four or five different brands all around us and we're all shooting each other and slashing each other's throats and, and jumping at each other and jumping at shadows. And he said, but the reality is we have no beachhead. When we built drive through um, the reality was we'd say to the franchisees, when you, and, and I'll use uh, Emerald as an example, which is one of our first ever drive throughs when you relocate your 100-square-metre shop from an inline shop to a 150-metre shop with drive through and 20 car parks out the front, you have now built a beachhead that your competitor walks in and says, well, unless my product is radically different, which in most industries in the pizza industry it's not, how can I compete with a guy who's got a sign out the front that says, come and get your pizza in two minutes and if you don't, it's free? Oh, and by the way, you don't have to get out of the car. You can drive right on through and and you have no safety issues with kids getting running over in car parks. And we saw that first store go from 20000 a week to 30000 a week, yet we didn't change price, we didn't change the offer, uh, and we didn't change the product. All we did was we changed the convenience of the punter, hence building a beach head. That that whole price thing is so fascinating because I know there's many small businesses listening who are constantly kind of finding themselves in pricing wars. And as you say, well, you sort of said it never finishes, and I kind of get what you mean by that. You could also say it finishes in tears because someone's got to lose. And um, having been the marketing manager at Flight Centre, I've seen price be such a – price is actually it's, – it's actually very expensive to be the cheapest because um, I know at Flight Centre the advertising budgets were out of control to remind people of just how cheap – cheap that the flight centre were. What, what, what do you say to small business owners who are finding it hard to find the courage not to compete on price? Um, I'll, just, I'll just double back on the point that you made and, and say that um, I wrote a book a few years back and one of the chapters is specifically about having a, a price positioning policy. And that doesn't actually have to focus on the fact that you're cheap, but what it has to do is it has to make you very, very clear in your mind of what your pricing um, policy is based around what you sell. And I'll give you, uh, you know, just one example where um, uh, you look at someone like uh, Harvey Norman who specifically focus on one or two products uh, to the consumer on a weekly or biweekly basis, uh, allowing them to get a perception that the deal that they're going to get at uh, Harvey Norman is going to be awesome keeping in mind that they're advertising two products and they sell 600. That price positioning policy for Harvey Norman is all about value. Um, I would use uh, our example in Eagle Boys where we were absolutely no way going to be discounting everything that we sold, but we had to be very, very clear on a couple of products that we sold that people knew that 
we were as good a value as anybody else out there in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So to come back to your question in regards to these people that have to fight for the courage as to where they're going to sit, I actually think the first thing you do is write your own price positioning policy, an absolute one-page document that says this is what I do and don't do on price. I mean, where the problems lie is they start bending the rules or they start reacting to what somebody down the corner is doing. Now, that person down the corner mightn't actually be doing anything that makes any sense. Don't react to it. You have to be very clear. I remember when Pizza Haven came into the marketplace and started offering two for one and doing all these ridiculous pricing deals, and we sat back and said, this business model is not sustainable. Their strategy is wrong. And it only took about five or six years, and they were gone. Yeah, and So you have to have the courage to, to, to realise that not every business model you're competing against is actually well thought out. It may be gone, um, but you certainly need to know where you stand or what your zebra is amongst horses. I'd love to get a kind of how-to on this, Tom. Is there a kind of um, is there three or four questions you've got to answer on that paper? Um, I've actually written one, and um, I'm happy to send it through to you, and you can you can um, plagiarise it a bit, Tim, and and, yep. you, and use it as a as a format or a formula you can supply to others. I'm more than happy to do that. Great, mate. Um, and and it's literally a two page document that says this is our price positioning policy. Mm-hmm. So tell me, uh, let's 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 move on from price because I know it's it's, it's interesting. It's great to have that discussion. It's something that comes up constantly amongst uh, amongst my listeners as to how to how to best price. So having that positioning paper would be gold. Let's talk about um, innovation because through innovation we can add value, and it takes it distracts us from having to try and compete on price. Um, you were innovative from the start with drive-through pizzas. Um, you've been innovative with a two-minute pizza. God knows how you did that. You might want to share that with us. But um, h- how do you go about innovating within the business? Is it is it a weekly thing? Are people free to throw up ideas? How's it happen? Well, that's a good question. I think that uh, first of all, if you're in a industry, particularly retail, um, because the market's changing so much and so fast, you do have to react to um, customers' needs, and you do have to continue to innovate. Why do you have to innovate? Because customers are always wanting something new. And you've only got to look at an Apple shop. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm 49 years old and I get a phone and I'll hang on to it for 10 years as it's a brick. But the psychology now is everybody wants to be in the Apple shop looking for the new whiz-bang super way of improving their lives. So if you're accepting the fact that people are constantly wanting change and innovation, you've certainly got to be offering that within the environment of where you're selling and what you're actually doing. How do you create that environment? I actually think that that is a real challenge. I think that people are terrified of making mistakes and losing their jobs. So creating a culture of it's it's okay to make mistakes or it's okay to come up with fresh ideas is certainly uh, an ongoing challenge. Do people within Eagle Boys feel as though they can float ideas with yourself and the management? Oh, let's let's get one thing clear. I sold Eagle Boys in two thousand and seven. Yeah, I, I should I should have said yeah yeah, but past tense. Yeah, we created a environment uh, for fresh ideas and with a strict agenda of issues to address, including innovation and new ideas. And one of the best things we did was we made sure that none of the Eagle Boys senior management or myself were in that room. So these guys could get together, and there was about eight of them from all around Australia could get together and actually talk about new ideas, concepts, and be very, very clear on why and what they were doing before they called me in at the end of the day and said, Tom, there's a bunch of things we'd like to run by you. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I'm saying that is the environment has to be right for innovation and new ideas. And it's bloody hard if you've got the CEO sitting in the room because naturally people are going to be terrified of saying or doing the wrong thing in front of them. So I think um, taking people away for a couple of days to climb up the side of um, logs and and swing down on trolleys and ropes, people think that's silly. I actually think it's a great idea because it allows you to get away from the four walls environment and then that that can be um, organised and run by an external person who can say, now, Every one of these programs we're going to go through is going to have a lesson in it and uh, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about, you know, what we've learned about it and we're going to have certain sessions where we're going to sit down and brainstorm 
So it's all about creating the right environment and culture for change and um, innovation. Yeah, very important. In fact, I had Phil McKenney, who was uh, the Vice President of Hewlett-Packard, on about 18 months ago, and he talked about innovation as being a critical process and the way they went about it too was he said exactly that. If you've got management in the room, makes it a lot harder to share ideas. What was the what was the innovation you're most proud of, Tom, during your time at Eagle Boys, and how did it come about? It was a, a couple of things we did. We'd inter- we invented a double-decker pizza box which cut down on packaging costs by about 25% and it increased the quality of the product being delivered because it double insulated the heat. That was pretty bloody radical and and took a lot of time to um, come up with. Um, We were the first company ever in Australia to register a colour. We registered the Pink Glow, which took us nine years with a patent office. Um, But I would say that the thing that uh, I was most proud of would be the two-minute pizza and the drive-through. There was, I mean, when you were standing in a shop and we would do an $8,000 hour in a drive-through and you were sitting in the takeaway and it was like a ghost town. No one was coming into the shop um, and all you could hear was the drive-through buzzer going, you know, 10 to the dozen. You very much knew that you were now offering a service that, has never been given before and customers loved it and it was very, very humbling as opposed to seeing a dozen people standing around pissed off, angry and waiting for their order to be called out. So so how, how do you do, let's, how do you physically do a two-minute pizza? We mixed a little bit of, um, a little bit, a lot of um, product innovation and technology and probably the best way to explain it, Tim, when you take a loaf of bread out of the oven, if you break that loaf of bread in half fresh out of the oven, you'll find that it's still quite soggy and doughy in the middle. But if you leave that bread sit there for the next 10 minutes, it will actually continue to bake under its own combustion. And then if you let it sit for another 30 minutes, you can cut it open and it's beautiful. What we did was, and let's face it, a lot of people don't realise this, but a loaf of bread is a very similar weight to a deep dish pizza. So when you order a large deep pan pizza, I think it's 580 grams and a, 600 lo- and a loaf of bread is 680 grams. So the concept was simply this, to slow down the baking process once taken out of the oven. So we would take a pizza out of the oven and instead of having it sit in a pizza box for 10 minutes until someone got it home to eat it, we would place it in a pizza box and we would slow bake it at a very, very, very low rate for the next 30 minutes. So when the customer walked in, we had the pizzas already sitting in our um, express units and our express units continued to bake the product at a very low rate. So the customer would walk in and there would be a a choice of four um, of our most popular pizzas. And if we, when we did taste tests of pizzas uh, within five minutes out of the oven versus being sitting in the express units for 35 minutes, people couldn't tell the difference. Hmm. It was a bit of technology, but it was more about thinking a little bit differently. One of the things that's always amazed me, Tom, about pizza shops is that very few, in fact, I can't even think of one right now, have allow impulse purchase. So two minutes is not an impulse purchase, but it's a very short wait time. But you would never, you'd never seem to be able to buy a slice of pizza at a pizza shop. Why is that? Uh, look, it's more cultural. I mean, you go to America and, and, and people eat pretzels, hot pretzels, and they're disgusting and they dip them in mustard. Uh, And then you go to Australia and people eat pies and the Americans think they're disgusting. Well, in America, the culture has been driven more so out of the eastern seaboard, but right across the cold states where you can walk into a pizza shop, the pizza's actually sitting there, they'll take the slice, they'll throw it in the oven for 30 seconds and then hand it to you. It's just not something we've culturally grown up with, somebody buying a slice of pizza. So even when you offer it, most people are, are, are reluctant to try something new. There is a shop or a couple of shops in Brisbane called New York Slice, and they only sell pizza by the slice. But then again, oh, yeah. they're amongst all the nightclub districts, and um, that's where they do all their business, you know, late nights. Mm, yeah, yeah. Interesting cultural. Uh, I, I would have thought even though it's cultural not to want to not to buy pizzas by the slice, I would have thought from a, a, it would have been a smart business decision because I know when I go up to get the uh, pizza for the family of a night time, I'd be, I'd be the first one to take a couple of slices while I'm waiting. 
Yeah, well, you'd be surprised most people wouldn't even consider that because they don't want to get their fingers dirty and they don't want to spill it on their clothes and they don't want to be eating it in the car. But I'd put I'd put a I'd put a pizza by the slice outlet in Spencer Street Station, for example. Yes, good point, Tom. Um, mo- moving on to uh, guerrilla marketing. If we could just maybe finish up the conversation there, you you uh, you're a proponent of guerrilla marketing. I think it's you know probably again not enough businesses go down this track. I had a great chat with Kim Illman from Messages on Hold two or three years ago, where he talked about how he went about it. Did you have a, a guerrilla marketing policy, or was it something that you uh, drew on when the need arose? We eventually had a guerrilla and tactical marketing manual. Um, it was, you know, probably 15 pages with 150 ideas. You don't have to have your own internal manual. I mean, there are manuals and books written by people specifically on guerrilla and tactical marketing. Um, if anybody is in a scenario where they are a um, niche business or they need to tactically or guerrilla program their marketing, they need to go and access a whole bunch of ideas that have been tried before by someone else. Um, But where most people fail or fall down, they get very enthusiastic about it, they try a handful of things and then they get distracted with their day-to-day running of their business and it gets pushed to the wayside. So I'm more of an exponent of um, setting yourself a very solid plan for your marketing for the 6 to 12 months, tracking it obviously analysing what's working and continuing to keep pushing it out there. Um, you know, a lot of great tactical and guerrilla marketing ideas never get past the first or second stage because people get too distracted in the day-to-day running of their business. So your guerrilla marketing handbook had uh, 150 ideas that you'd picked up from just reading and researching what others had done? Uh, yeah, I specifically remember reading a book about guerrilla marketing and guerrilla warfare written by a guy by the name of Shapiro out of the U.S., and um, also I thought that I got a lot of value out of that book, um, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Mm. Um, you know, he specifically talks about guerrilla marketing, guerrilla tactics. Um, so I, I, it's very much a mindset that people have to get their heads around. Uh, and, and it's fascinating when you see, you know, retail shops where they might have, you know, five, maybe 6,000 people a day walking past their, past their shops and, you know, basic point of sale in guerrilla tactical marketing to be right there at the shop front can bring more people in the door and they forget that, um, you know, that's where the customer is there right now. All they have to do is get there and tell them what they're doing. Were you knowing to put a bloke in, a, in an eagle suit? Uh, was that the best guerrilla marketing you did or was there something else that comes to mind? Oh, we did a lot of stuff. We did stuff where we got put in jail. Yeah, tell me more. Yeah, I remember uh, West Coast Eagles uh, going back in the 90s where our, our – uh, Eagle Boy ran on the ground and was locked up and taken off in handcuffs. Oh, here's a good one. Now, uh, I'm very much a, a strong believer in guerrilla and tactical marketing for events as well. And um, when we opened up Eagle Boys in Wellington in New Zealand, we went from zero to ten stores in a period of about four weeks. So we had a massive team of people over there building and training and getting these stores up and open. So instead of putting all our money into mainstream television, media and so forth, we allocated, I can't remember how much money it was, it wasn't much, but we got 20 eagle costumes sent over from Australia and we got these eagles employed every day for, you know, probably four hours and we would send them all to one place, Um, you know, might be the main busiest train station or it might have been the main vein in and out of the airport or it might have been picketing parliament with, um, you know, stupid signs like death to fish and chips, Eagle Boys have arrived. But it created such an amount of awareness and interest when you've got, you know, imagine walking down the main street of Melbourne or Brisbane and seeing 20 eagles walking around holding up placards or doing something. (laughs) Flock of eagles. Yeah, it didn't take a lot of money. All it took was a little bit of innovative thinking to create enormous awareness, um, which eventually went hand in hand with the opening of all the shops. Yeah, that's clever. I would imagine you would have got a fair amount of media coverage too. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, smaller markets are always easy to get media coverage in, and particularly when there's not a lot happening. In New Zealand, there's not a lot happening. 
Uh, guerrilla marketing is certainly something that uh, I think all small businesses should explore a little bit more of, particularly given uh, modest marketing budgets that I know many listeners have. What do you think about the current marketing environment, Tom? It's changed a lot. You sound like a very much an old school marketer. You 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 stick to you know the tried and tested. Um, a lot of the things that we talk about on the Small Business Big Marketing Show are tend to be online. It's not an online marketing show, but you know we are who Google says we are these days, so you want to have your online footprint sorted. What do you think of where marketing's going? I've got to tell you, I'm terrified at the moment because being someone who sold their business five or six years ago and not being in sitting in the boardroom or in the marketing presentations for the last few years, it's almost hard for me to, to give some sort of forecast as to where it's going. What I will say, and this is based on you know experience and experience only. What I have experienced over the years is there is an enormous amount of information um, that people are trying to collate and then trying to package that information into the consumer's needs. And I found that over the years, reading a lot of research documents where there was a lot of money spent, I would always like to have a one-page summary attached to the back of the front of that document saying, all bullshit aside, tell me what are the two or maybe three, but usually two, most important critical things we have to tell the consumer to get them interested in buying our product and then mm-hmm. tell me the one or two most important mediums we can use. And when you see companies out there trying to compete in uh, cyber world, uh, electronic media, social media and television and papers and yellow pages and so forth, they have lost the plot. I think you have a choice of finding maybe one or two messages and one or two mediums and driving that point home, keeping it very, very simple. Now, that also has to be in line with the fact that your, I mean, your background's flight center, you know what it's all about. I mean, these guys were very clear on their message, very clear on what their offer was, uh, very clear on their ability to get to the consumer. There was no confusion about the brand, the product, and just how much marketing it continued to take to tell people what you actually did. So um, short of trying to say where the ability to get the consumer's message is, I'm, I'm questioning right now the amount of money that's probably being spent on social media um, being a lot of fun and um, chit-chat around the water cooler or the bar Friday night versus what actually drives sales. Yeah, definitely there is a whole lot of businesses out there who almost feel compelled to be there in that social media space without really a plan uh, or an intent or, you know, a focus as to what to do. You know, they've kind of gone and opened up the Facebook, the Twitter, the LinkedIn, the Pinterest, the Google+, the YouTube, and then kind of gone, right, <laughs> well, now what do we do? Yeah, I just had a meeting with the guys from Specsavers. And, uh, you know, big player, only been here five years in the market, have taken the place by storm. You know, love them or hate them, not only do we see them, but we know what they do. And they're very, very um, aligned with who their target market is. End of story. Great example. Great example. That one message thing, I think, is um, very, uh, very valid. Um, I always worry about the number one. You know, some people, there's some schools of thoughts out there that say, you know, the number one's the most dangerous number in business. But having a focused message, absolutely. Relying on one or two mediums, you know, can be a little bit scary. But again, it's not as if, you know, the small businesses in particular, it's not as if we have huge budgets to play with. So uh, you're better off being big in something than small in a whole lot of things. Well, I'll give you an example. I've just opened up two bakeries in Brisbane. So I'm nobody. I'm nobody with no voice and no marketing budget. And the second bakery we opened was plodding along okay, wasn't getting, and I was putting flyers out. We were doing um, local advertising in papers, basically doing the the stuff, Tim, where you go, I'm in a new industry, there is no precedent because nobody markets a bakery. Right? Nobody markets a bank, actually goes out and spends money on advertising. After a year and a half, I decided to go and spend $25,000 on an illuminated sign out on the main road where our shop was. Just one big-ass sign that's illuminated that we can change the messages out, you know, the LED stuff. We saw an increase in sales within four months of 30%. So I just said, I'm not going to spend money on mainstream advertising and marketing anymore. I'm just going to go and spend 30 grand on a sign. 
because that is my advertising, that is my marketing. So, you know, ultimately it was like there is probably 30,000 cars a day driving past that site. They pull up at the lights, which is the turning to the shopping centre where I'm at. So I'm going to go and own the biggest, brightest sign on that corner and tell people what I do. And it worked. So are you going to, are you going to do that for every uh, crusty devil bakehouse that you open? Well, that's a good question. Um, um, if I'm on a um, main shopping centre road where people can see my sign, I'd say right now I can't, I can't argue that success. Um, there's no doubt about it because I would say 90% of what we did in the first year and a half trialling out new marketing ideas simply didn't work. Um, some businesses live and die on marketing like the pizza industry other businesses, uh, like bakeries, they're, they're sort of almost in this mindset, well, I'm here and people will come to me. But ultimately, that's um, that wasn't good enough for me. We wanted to get double-digit growth, which we did for the first two years. We, we went 20% and then the second year we went 30% on the previous 20% by, by saying, yeah, there's no question about being a good business, but we need to get people in to trial us. And that word needs to be used Every day in every way, the word trial. Trial, yeah. Tom, the, um, the the whole concept of Krusty Devil Bakehouse is about having a drive-through uh, offer. Is that it? No. Um, in fact, the first two that I've built don't actually have drive-throughs. The first two I've built, I've specifically built so I can learn the industry. And and I've got to say, Tim, when Eagle Boys was um, evolving and operating as a business, we would struggle to have one point of difference. And eventually, um, by having drive-through and two-minute pizza, we had we had a couple of points of difference. Um, which, by the way, the company do- now doesn't offer anymore. Which has you know been just astonishing that they took that off the offer. But what's actually been researched in my industry was that um, in Queensland, in particular, I found that there was 180 bakeries that I visited. Only three of them had air conditioning, which was just astonishing. None of them were producing product during the day, so people would see no product, they'd smell nothing, they would taste uh, nothing as they walked past. So what our, our point of difference to commence was, was that we were going to produce through the day, every day, so people could walk in and see the, 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 the croissants being baked and the pies coming out of the oven and the sausage rolls being made right in front of them. So it's a theatre. Um, and then we followed it up with offering an environment where people could sit down in a cool and comfortable environment in Queensland. And trust me, sitting down in a bakery in January without air conditioning <laughs> is not a pretty sight. So just by having those two points of difference has taken us to phase one. Phase two is now that we understand the business, we understand what people are eating, what they want, and what they like, we'll be to go to the drive through stage. Yeah, right. I love that that whole concept of theatre. Um, I remember when Krispy Kremes first came to Australia and they set up at Sydney Airport way out in the back blocks there and, um, you know, you could go in and see the donuts going along the production line and they had the light flashing, which meant you were free to go up and ask for one to, to sample it. So there's your trial, your sampling. Um, and it was, it was theatre. It was an experience. Yeah. And, in fact, last, last week's guest, Brad Smith from um, Brap Motorbikes, talked about this whole, the importance of the concept store, giving people – you know, a reason to come and enjoy and make it a destination. No, oh, on Saturday mornings, I love watching the kids come in with their dads and standing up at the glass window and looking through and watching the bakers actually cake decorating and producing right there in front of them. Like they're literally six inches away as they can see through the glass. And on our website, Krusty Devil's website, we have a section that says Watch Us Bake. And we have a whole bunch of links that you can click on to see all the different products that are made right there in the store. Baker Cam. Yeah, no, we haven't gone down that road. We wanted to, but it was all too hard. What we did was we, we actually got the professionals in and we and we took film of everything in it so it can be seen. So on the click on it says, you know, do you want to see us how we make pies? Do you want to see how we make cakes? Do you want to see how we make bread? It's all here. Interesting. Great idea. Hey, uh, Tom, it's been an interesting chat, mate. I really appreciate you sharing some of those marketing insights with the small business, big marketing crowd. My pleasure. Uh, we've got some challenges here, but we've got to keep trying new things and evolving and, uh, like I said, You know, you eat what you kill. I love your work. Thanks, Tom. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's... Okay, team, I hope you enjoyed that and got some marketing gold from my fireside chat with Tom Potter, founder of Eagle Boys Pizza. I certainly did. I want to share four learnings I got from you. Number one... 
Be innovative. Continue to be innovative in your business or start to be innovative in your, in your business. It takes the focus away from price and puts the focus on value. And that's when you can charge more. That's when you mean more. That's when you build that brand, that emotional attachment that we always continue to talk about on this show. Speaking of price, my second point, my second takeaway from my chat with Tom is establish a policy on price and don't deviate from it. Get that one pager happening and don't deviate from it. I'll get that uh, that structure from Tom and I'll put it in the show notes to this episode, episode 154 at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Uh, number three, I think spend more time guerrilla marketing. I think we all need to do that. I had a crack at it about 12 months ago and uh, some various things got in the way. Uh, I think it was November of 2012 and just didn't quite happen. But, you know, I like the idea of doing some, you know, getting some books on guerrilla marketing and creating that that manual like Tom did of all these different guerrilla marketing ideas that you could potentially be doing for your business. If you ever do one, let me know. I love guerrilla marketing. I might have an interview. I'd like, I'd like certainly like to hear if you've had any success guerrilla marketing. Number four, find one marketing channel and really, you know, blow it apart. Now, I do think one is a risky number in business, but I do love Tom's idea uh, in terms of what he's done with the bakery in, in that signage, like big, big sign out the front. He's got 30,000 cars going past there every day. I mean, signage just sounds like a no-brainer uh, marketing strategy, despite the fact that I think it was, he said it was 25 grand, but um, I can imagine that being a very, very useful marketing strategy. So uh, thanks, Tom Potter, for being on the Small Business Big Marketing Show, and thanks, listeners, for hanging around, and hope you learned something from that interview. Hey, lots, lots, and lots of marketing goodness coming up in future episodes, and if you want to keep the marketing goodness going throughout the week, then be sure to go over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com and join the forum. I'm in there every day answering marketing questions, posing marketing questions, and there's a whole lot of other motivated small business owners in there doing the same. If you've never been into a forum before, it ain't technical, it's not scary, it's just bloody useful. So I encourage you to get over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com and join up now. I'll see you in there. Until then, I reckon that's about enough. May your marketing be the best marketing. See you next week. You've been listening to the Small Business Big Marketing Show with Tim Reid. Want more marketing goodness? Then visit smallbusinessbigmarketing.com.